Today is the first day in our season as we journey towards Easter Sunday. And no, you are not losing your mind. We did not skip ahead to Palm Sunday. In fact, this is the first week of Lent, but we are considering what is typically our Palm Sunday text. We are considering the triumphal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of Lent because this scene is really the beginning of the end. This is the first act in what we consider the passion of Christ. And for the next six weeks, we're going to consider the passion in its entirety. Our sermons will be around the activity of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. And these sermons will track along with the book by Amy Jo Levine called Entering the Passion. You can join us as we study it tonight at 5 o'clock in McDavid Library. You can join one of the new small groups that begins this week. You can join one of the Sunday school classes that is using this text. Or you could just purchase the book and journey alongside of us as we together consider what it means to make our way into the passion of Jesus. And so this morning we begin our Lent by considering what does it mean to risk reputation? What does it mean for us to risk our reputation? Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We thank you for your word. May us be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to self-identify. But I'm curious, does anyone in here have an ichthus on the back of your car? Ichthus is the, the fancy Greek word for what we call now the Jesus fish. You know, early disciples, they used to draw the ichthus in the ground to identify themselves as Christians. And today, as Christians, many of us might have the ichthus on the back. I think the com- most common place to see that symbol is on the back of a Christian's car. Maybe you don't have an ichthus on your car, but, but maybe, do you ever wear one of the t-shirts that say, I'm a Christian? It might not say that, that explicitly in bold, but perhaps it's like a camp t-shirt or from one of our service project days. Or maybe you have one of those cartoonish t-shirts you can get at the Christian bookstore that say things like body piercing, save my life. I'll let you think about that one for a second. I guess what I'm asking is, do any of us in here have some sort of identifier that clearly shows we are followers of Christ? There's no shaming if you do not. It's not a commandment or even a decree of the New Testament to have some sort of outward-facing symbol of your Christianity. But this morning, we're talking about reputation and about how much of our faith are we willing to put out there for the world to see. And so we're doing this by starting at the beginning of the end, the triumphal parade of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as we consider this traditionally Palm Sunday text, I think it's important for us to begin by asking three questions. The first is, what exactly is going on in this story? The second question is, what makes this event significant? And the last question is, how does Palm Sunday cause Jesus to risk his reputation. So let's take each of those questions one at a time. The first, what exactly is going on? At this point in the gospel story, Jesus has developed a following. Between the feeding of thousands of people and the teachings and the healings and the miracles that he has done, there is a small contingent that thinks that Jesus is the Messiah, 
the one they have been waiting for. His ministry and the Jewish calendar have now brought him into Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover, and over 200,000 pilgrims travel to the city that is typically occupied by 40,000 or less. Imagine that. A small city of 40,000 overrun by over 200,000. As they are walking, Jesus sent two disciples ahead of him, saying, Go unto the village ahead of you and untie a colt and a donkey. Bring them to me. If anybody asks, just tell them, The Lord sent you. And so they did as Jesus says, and they bring back the animals. And Jesus likely just rides on one of them, not both of them. Different gospels say it was a donkey. The other says it was a colt. Some say it was a colt and a donkey. But he didn't likely lay across them sideways. He likely just rode on the one. Think of it like the red carpet that's being rolled out for celebrities and dignitaries as to what happens next. He's riding on the donkeys, and then people lay down their coats for the donkey to walk on, for Jesus to walk on. If they don't have a coat, they put down palm branches to help people see that there's something significant happening here. As they're walking to Jerusalem, everyone is shouting at him. They say, Hosanna! They call him the son of David. And when he gets into the city, the place is already in a frenzy. It says it's already in turmoil. Because there's 200,000 people in a city of 40,000. And then upon seeing this parade, people who don't know, people who aren't in the know, they ask, who is this guy? People say this is Jesus of Nazareth. But I think really what they're asking is, Who does this guy think he is? Why does this guy deserve a parade? You know, this is not that unusual of a scene in the ancient Near East in the first century. It might seem peculiar to us, but the people of this time, they are used to settings like this, where there are entry parades of triumph, fanfare, pomp, and circumstance. It's not particularly peculiar for them to see something like this, but the parade contains just enough variance from what they're used to seeing to set it apart. Which brings us to our second question. Why is this event significant? Why do the gospel writers choose to tell us about this? I think the question is best answered if we consider an account of another parade that took place potentially that same day in Jerusalem. There is a book called The Last Week by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan where they invite us to consider that two processions entered Jerusalem on a spring day in the year 30 CE. One procession came from the east, largely composed of peasants, following a certain Jesus from Galilee, riding on a donkey in from the Mount of Olives. The second procession, on the opposite side of the city, approaches from the west, where the Roman governor Pontius Pilate entered the city on a war horse, at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. He had come from Caesarea Maritima for the purpose of maintaining law and order during the potentially tumultuous days of the festival of Passover. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God while Pilate proclaimed the power of the empire. This is what establishes the central conflict that led to Jesus' crucifixion. The kingdom of God versus the power of empire. Now, 
we don't know if these two processions actually took place on the same day, but we do know that those processions both used to take place. We know for sure, as we read the Bible, that the Palm Sunday procession happened as Jesus entered Jerusalem, and we know from historical accounts that the procession of Roman governors took place in the way I just described it. So what is it to imagine that both those took place on the same day? You know, there are many things about this triumphal entry of Jesus that make it significant, but I think the foundational importance is that it's wrapped in its political ramifications. This event, as much as any other in the Gospels, is overwhelmingly the the declaration that Jesus is king. Jesus is the ultimate authority. The crowd is celebrating the arrival of the awaited Messiah. How do we know this? Well, it's right there in the text that we just read. There are specific identifiers that are explicitly stating that Jesus is the king. For starters, the procession begins at the Mount of Olives, which is the traditional location for where the Messiah is expected to appear. Also, the people are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna literally means, save us, please. And Son of David is a reference to the golden age of Israel when King David ruled Jerusalem. And the prophets say, the Messiah will come from the line of David. So they're calling Jesus, Son of David. The awaited king, please save us from these political oppressors. Please save us from the Roman occupiers. And probably most importantly, Matthew makes a reference to the prophet Zechariah when he writes, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. These three reasons alone are enough to convince us that the Jews truly believed that this was their Savior, that this was the one who was sent in the name of the Lord to bring salvation to the Israelites. He was the one who would overthrow the Romans and restore Israel to the seat of power and might. This was their Messiah. This was their King. And this event is significant because it was the arrival of the Messiah who came into the climax of the Jewish people's struggle. Which brings us to our third question. How does this act cause Jesus to risk his reputation? Because this is risky business that Jesus is doing. This event might seem fun, circumstantial, based on the waving of the palms and the riding of the parade. But it's terribly risky what Jesus is doing. If there were two processionals entering Jerusalem that day, One is a group of peasants following a widely known but still relatively insignificant carpenter from Nazareth. The other is the entrance for someone of great renown. Pontius Pilate is the embodiment of Rome and Roman power. He represents the power and might and the glory of the entire empire. When he enters into the city, it's as if the Roman emperor himself were entering, treated with the same respect. On one side of the city, you have a man who says he is the ruling authority for all things. And on the other side of the city, you have another man who says he is the ruling authority for all things. As far as occupiers go, historically, Romans were considered to be some of the wiser and more gracious of the ancient world. Whenever they took over a people group, they didn't force their subjects to give up their religion or to learn a new language or to abandon their customs. 
They did, however, mandate that everyone recognize the emperor as the chief authority on earth and in all the heavens. You didn't have to give up your gods. You just had to admit the emperor was the best god, the highest god, the chief god. Violation of this policy was one of the fundamental things that the government would not tolerate. They saw that as the worst kind of insurrection. And here comes Jesus, riding in on a donkey, committing that exact crime. Jesus is breaking the law by saying that there is only one true God and it ain't Caesar. In a sense, he's risking his reputation by causing trouble between the Jews and the Romans, a relationship already fraught with tension. But as we read this text, I think there's actually more risky behavior at work. I think there's a more serious way that Jesus is risking his reputation because up until this part of the gospel story, Jesus has mostly just been a fringe healer and teacher. He's been a person who developed a following, but he hadn't yet made it to the I'm so important that people make assassination plots and carry them out type level of importance. Sure, he frustrated the Jewish leaders, but he's still operating in the shadows. He's still not even on the radar of the Roman government. But then comes this parade. This is the moment where Jesus says, I'm no longer a supporting character to anybody's story. This is the moment where he accepts for himself the mantle of responsibility that everyone else has tried to place on him. Before today, he was instructing people, don't tell anyone what you have seen here. Throughout Mark, he's telling, he'll do a miracle and says, don't tell anybody. We call it the messianic secret. He was often sauntering away from crowds when they pressed in too tightly. He would retreat time and time again with his disciples, but not today. Not on Palm Sunday. Today, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the holy city, and he makes it plain that he's approaching this city from the direction from which the Messiah is supposed to come. He is saying by his actions and by later his words that he is here to initiate the installation of the kingdom of God. Jesus is risking his reputation and putting everything on the line for what he knows he was made to do. Over the next six weeks, we'll talk more about how Jesus tried to make it plain that he was a different kind of Messiah. He advocates against violence. He refuses to rub elbows with the religious elite. He praises the lowly and the outcasts. And so this version of the triumphal entry is perfectly on par with how Jesus tries to convey his version of messianic character. Instead of a white horse, he's on a donkey. Instead of military guard, he has a ragtag group of nobodies. Instead of flowers, gold, and trappings, he has people's coats and some branches off nearby trees. This is not some entrance of a grand military conqueror. It's the arrival of a humble hero that no one but the prophets could have predicted. And so this parade is about more than just fulfilling prophecy. It's about Jesus putting himself out there making a declarative statement that he is the Messiah. He is the king of kings, and he's coming to restore the people. In this moment, Jesus is very much risking his reputation. And when we read this text in light of that reality, 
When we read the Palm Sunday through the lens of reputation, we are forced to ask ourselves, are we willing to risk the same? As we journey to the cross this Lenten season, we know that our ultimate goal is to be more like Christ. Well, that goal gets much more practical when we ask ourselves, are we also willing to risk our reputation? Are we not only willing to act like Christ followers, but are we willing to let the world know that we are Christ followers? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's telling the world who he is and what he's for. Can you say the same? It doesn't have to be the fish on the back of your car or a t-shirt, but are there ways in which you are making it known that you are a Christ follower and you stand to support what the scriptures call us to do and to be? Or when the belittling of a coworker or acquaintance takes place, do you stand idly by not speaking up like Christ would do? When offered the chance to be more involved in the life of the church, do you take it or opt for less religious extracurriculars to win favor with friends? Do we do anything that shows the world we follow Jesus? Something as simple as maybe reading your Bible in public. Or are you afraid that somebody might see us saying that we're Christians and ask us a question and we won't know the answer? Are you afraid to tell the world that you follow Christ, but that they might see the other parts of your life and doubt your faith? I think that's a large part of the reason why we are afraid to associate our reputation with that of a faithful Christian. It's because we're afraid somebody might see us fail, not live up to what we're claiming to be. We might not measure up to what we know is the life of Christ, so it's better just to not put ourselves in that situation. Lest we be embarrassed. I mean, we know that we're not ready to rid ourselves of some of the choices we believe are less than Christ-like. So why potentially mar our own reputation or that of our church? I believe that's one of the hardest changes a person has to make between being a churchgoer and being a Christ follower. It's the willingness to risk our reputation. But here's the thing, friends. The good news is, as Jesus risked his reputation, it wasn't so that everybody would automatically understand. Because we know they did not. Jesus put himself out there, but he was not greeted with some installation of a monarch on the seat of Jewish and Roman power and authority. But he was led to death on a cross for choosing what he knew to be right. But God even redeemed that in the most ultimate form of redemption. As we celebrate on Easter Sunday that not even death could overcome the work of God. And so what are you doing to risk your reputation? Because I can guarantee you, no matter how scary it is, and no matter what happens from it, if you're putting yourself out there on behalf of the kingdom, that God can do incredible things through that, because of that, with that. Are we willing to do the same? To admit that our Christian faith 
is important to us, to put it out there in the presence of others and let them do the deciding for our reputation, put our reputation in the hands of somebody else other than ourselves, because that's what Jesus did. This question, this Palm Sunday lesson, it reminds me of a hymn written by Dolores Duffin. Oh Christ, what can it mean for us to claim you as our King? What royal face have you revealed whose praise the church would sing, aspiring not for glory's heights, to power, wealth, and fame? You walked a different, lowly way, another's will your aim. You chose a humble human form and shunned the world's renown. You died for us upon a cross with thorns, your only crown. But still beyond the span of years, our glad hosannas ring. For now at God's right hand, you reign a different kind of king. That's the Christ whose passion began when he entered the city of Jerusalem. That's the man we follow as our king. That is the one who risked everything for us and for what he knew to be right. That's the example we aspire to emulate. So how are you risking your reputation? In what ways does the world see you and through you see Christ? What are you waiting for, if not? May it be so with you and with me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.